Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Daniel. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. This is a podcast episode about listening. So we are joined by the New York Times contributor, Kate Murphy, who is the author of a new book titled You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters. Kate Murphy's idea is that in today's society, we're constantly talking over each other. We're taught to to lead the conversation and to sometimes dominate the conversation, but we're not listening to others and no one's listening to us. And that now more than ever, we need to be listening to each other because listening has the potential to transform our lives and our relationships and those around us. So in Kate Murphy's book, she draws on conversations with priests, CIA interrogators, bartenders, her own friends to illustrate how listening can really help us connect with others. Kate in this podcast is interviewed by Roz Irwin of the Sunday Times, and we hope you enjoy listening to the episode. Hello, I'm Ros Irwin and welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Welcome, Kate Murphy. I wanted to start with where we're going wrong. Your title makes a very strong statement that we are no longer good listeners. How has that happened and why have we lost the art of good listening, do you think? I think it's been happening gradually as we're listening more to machines than to one another. So, you know, it's really started since 100 years ago. They've actually tracked the amount of time during our waking hours that we listen to other people. And it's gone down by half since 100 years ago. But, of course, it's been accelerating within the last decade because of our smartphones. And also just what's happening culturally and politically – where people can no longer abide to listen to people who have different beliefs, who are on the different side of the political spectrum. And um, also just the really the environments we've created for ourselves. You can't go to a restaurant now and have a decent conversation. They're so loud. It's the top complaint of diners in the Zagat survey is that they can't hear each other at restaurants. So it's really a myriad of factors that are keeping us from listening to one another. One of the problems that you identify early on is that we all now talk over one another. Yes. Part of that's come from maybe being influenced by TV. We see a lot of people talking over one another there. But how do we stop doing that as a species? How do we prevent ourselves always thinking that the next thing that matters is what we're saying next? I think it's developing your curiosity. I mean, one of the most valuable things that I've learned as a journalist is that everybody is interesting. 
if you ask the right questions. And if you're only advancing your own agenda and trying to be an influencer or whatever it is that's making you jump in on the conversation, you're not going to find out that story. And it is fascinating. So it's really turning yourself into a detective in conversation of what is this person's story? What can I find out about this person? Because there's an interesting person in there. As an interviewer myself, I mean, that's exactly what I always tell people when they go off to do interviews, fellow journalists, that it's your job to make somebody else interesting. And your your job is to find that. What have you learned as an interviewer about listening? Oh, gosh, so many things. Well, first is just that key point that it's in there. And that if this person is not interesting, then it's on me. I haven't asked the right questions yet. And, um, and it really is the questions. It's getting, getting to the part of that person that gets them excited or gets them passionate. It can be their bottle cap collection. It will be interesting if they're passionate about it. So it's also asking open-ended questions and not, not trying to impose your opinion on the question, which we do so easily, don't you think? Isn't it true that, you know, if your question starts with that, you're not going to get the real story or what's deep within the other person. And certainly, please don't end your question with, right? Hmm. Because that, that presupposes an answer. What you're inviting the other person to do is tell you their story. And so it's, it's a different type of question. And once you have that motivation in your mind, I want to leave this conversation having learned something about the other person. Because you don't learn anything if you're the one who's talking. You already know about you. I think it's the big thing that I've learned listening back to myself interviewing is that I need to shut up. More. Yes. <laughs> Does, I think that is actually very helpful to people like you and me that when you do listen to recorded interviews, you're just thinking, oh, be quiet. You don't, you know, you didn't need to go on about that. Just, you know, let the person talk. Part of it as well is that we naturally fill uh, silences, that we find them awkward socially. Yes. And sometimes you need to learn as well to leave a silence. Yes, it's, it's very powerful. But, it, you know, silences are funny. We call them dead air. You know, how pleasant does that sound? You know, people avoid that at all costs. And they've done studies where they show conversation, where they track normal conversation. And the amount of time the average amount of time that is allowed between where the speaker leaves off and then the next person comes in is usually less than a blink of an eye or actually is even before the other person stops talking because we're so intent of getting rid of that silence. And if you're jumping in even after that blink of an eye, if you actually do wait for them to finish, what have you been doing? You've been thinking about what you've been wanting to say before they even stop talking. So you really weren't listening to that other person. And silences really can work to your advantage because they really indicate to the other person that you are thinking about what they said. That little pause, in fact, someone I interviewed um, in the book talked about how he married his wife because she does pause after he finishes talking and he can tell she's thinking about what he said. I think that's quite a rare trait, isn't it? Yes, to just take that moment to reflect, you know, even if you raise your eyes and let the person know, let me think about that. And also, you know, it really takes the pressure off you if you realize that you don't have to immediately respond and that it's also okay to say, you know, I don't know what to say or, you know, let me think about that. 
Because that really demonstrates that you respect what the other person said and you're really thinking about it. You know, a lot of times, you know, subconsciously or consciously, when you jump in with something right after someone's finished talking, they know that you weren't listening to the entire – because how could you possibly jump in immediately with what you want to say? That just indicates to to the person you were, quote-unquote, listening to that they were just waiting for your lips to stop moving. You know, they had already formulated what they're going to say. They did not hear what you were going to say, what they were saying. And one area you mentioned, obviously, where we're all about projecting ourselves Uh is social media. Yes. How do you think, and I realize different platforms are different, but they are essentially a megaphone of us shouting at the world. Yes. And conveying things about ourselves. How do you think that's made this problem worse? Well, I think it's just listening is a skill. And like any skill, it degrades if you don't practice it. And if your only interaction with people or your predominant interaction with people is tweeting out something where no one can respond and you're just, you know, pick up that phone. You know, that's how I'm going to communicate with people. And it's very much one way. You know, you may get some likes back and that's what you're waiting for in terms of feedback. But it's you're not practicing that really essential skill of what is that person thinking? What is that person feeling? Why is that person telling me this? And really reading, you know, the soft crinkling around their eyes or maybe one eyebrow going up or, you know, maybe, you know, repeatedly, you know, stroking a bit of their hair, you know, where you're really trying to get a sense of, you know, is this person comfortable? Is this person not comfortable? Why is this person telling me this? Did that eyebrow go up because they were unsure or was it because they were doubtful? That kind of thing. And it's it's so many messages. Even the, the soft shading of people's skin, we're not aware of it. But the actual color of people's face changes with different emotions. That's some other research that I talk about in the book. We're not conscious of it, but there's an actual different coloration of the person's face that you're picking up on. And, you know, if all you're doing is tweeting, you're losing all of this. And it is something that you get better at the more you do it. And we do obviously have an example of people who can't naturally listen, which is people who are born deaf. Yes. You talk in the book about what that might do in terms of your ability to interact and understand other people. What is the evidence there that whether people who are born deaf do struggle in terms of developing relationships originally with people? Well, they've done lots – there's actually extensive research on that, that people who are born without the ability to hear do have a much harder time establishing bonds, of course, you know, understanding. There's a lot of uh, misunderstanding. But it's really, you know, forming attachments, that type of thing. And the research is also very clear about people who lose their hearing later in life that it makes them isolated, it makes them depressed, it makes them feel lonely. It's just, it's essential to connection to be able to listen to somebody. Mm. Your example at the beginning about restaurants getting louder, (laughs) I mean, it's very true of bars as well. Yes, We're all sort of conscious of that horrible feeling where you sort of just nod along because you can't really, (laughs) you do the nervous nod and smile Yes, uh, because you can't hear what someone's saying, but you've asked too many times and it becomes embarrassing. What do you think in terms of if you're ever in a situation where you're conscious and not because of those kind of examples, but because someone actually genuinely isn't listening to you properly, Mm -hmm. what can you say to them? 
That's hard. But I, you know, it depends on your relationship with the person, because if you don't know them very well and you say, you know, you're not listening and are, you know, are you hearing what I say? Then that's going to set up probably you're not not your best circumstance. But I think, you know, people with you know, that you know well to be able to say to them, you know, are you are you listening? You know, are you hearing what I'm saying? You know, that I think is a valid thing to do. Now, with people that you don't know as well, I think, you know, asking them a question at, you know, a point saying, you know, is everything I'm saying clear? You know, is, you know, do you have any questions for me? You know, that kind of thing to kind of re-engage them and bring them back into the conversation. Or maybe wake them up yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Hello. <laughs> um, you say right at the beginning that arguably listening is more valuable than speaking. And yet in schools, everything we learn is around speaking, it's right. around speech. So we have debating teams and we have competitions and oratory and all of that. Mm-hmm. What, what we're never taught, no one ever gives you a lesson, apart from maybe when you're learning languages, but generally speaking, you don't, in your own language, you're never taught to listen. You know, worse than that, we're actually discouraged from listening. I mean, really, if you think about it, when you're a little kid, whenever somebody says, you know, listen to me, you know, that's not like you're not going to like the message probably coming after that. If your parents, you're saying, you need to learn to listen. It just makes you shut down more, you know. So even the the word listen almost gets a bad connotation. You know, when someone says listen up, like your camp counselor or something, it just meant, okay, you're going to get a bunch of rules and things are not going to be fun anymore. So, you know, that's that's part of it too. And also, you know, we're just so intent as a culture on selling ourselves and staying on message and shaping the narrative that – it really has been devalued. And listening is actually the more powerful position in communication, not only because you learn when you listen, you understand, you connect. It's how you empathize. It's how you cooperate. It's how you're creative and establish patterns in your mind of all these different things that you're taking in. But also, you know, when you listen to someone, you understand them and their motivations and their mindset. So when it is your turn to talk, you'll be able to craft a message that's that much more effective with that knowledge that you have of the other person. So it's really, it benefits you on both sides of communication, both the listening and the speaking. The best orators are the ones that know their audience. Right. That um, I can remember as a child being told by my mother that we have you know, one mouth and two ears, and we should use them in that proportion. You have a more highbrow version of the same idea yeah. in the book. But clearly a lot of us think a conversation should always be 50-50. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually you can get a lot more from actually sitting back and saying less. How do we get the me- that message across at a time when everyone is always thinking about what they're saying next? I, you know, I think when people start doing it and they actually are in conversations where they almost lose themselves in the conversation and it does become like this dance, everybody's, or I hope everybody's had a conversation where they've met someone at a party or maybe it's with a best friend or a relative that you really connect with and you start having a conversation with them and you're latching on to what each other is saying and it's like this dance and you're not in your head and it's just, you really feel like, it's 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 something that almost gets you behind your solar plexus 
that it's just such a feeling of connection and attachment, you know, even with a stranger. It could be, you know, like a checker at the grocery store where you just have that moment of real connection. And that's the reward in itself. And I almost feel like it feeds upon itself. Once you start listening and have those types of conversation and realize that every conversation can actually be that way. And, you know, when you say, when we think conversations can be 50-50, you know, conversations are, you know, like relationships. Some conversations, you know, where someone's going to be taking up more of the slack and other times the other ones. So it's never going to be this exact balance, but with relationships, it evens out in the end, all conversations put together. Um. You say in the book about all of us sort of having that desire to have our brain in sync with someone else. You have mm-hmm. this lovely example of, of the academics who have basically a more intense relationship than their own marriages with each other. They can sit at one typewriter yes. and produce work together. Yes. What is it that we're looking for there? Is it that when we feel that connection, that straightforward connection, that we feel less lonely, we feel less alone in our ideas? I think it's that, but, I, you know, I love one of the psychologists I quote in the book calls it uh, snatches of magic, that that is that moment of connection. But also, if you look at the science, you look at the neuroscience, they have done studies where they have, they hook up to fMRI machines, the speaker and the listener. And when there's that moment of connection, of true understanding, the brainwaves actually are in sync. You know, we talk about, oh, you know, he and I are totally in sync, or she and I are totally in sync. It's actually true. That is what is happening in your brain. So it's not only that feeling that, you know, more poetic snatches of magic. You can see that in our neural impulses. And I think, you know, those neural impulses really show what's happening within the body. It's, you know, and chemicals are released, like oxytocin, when you have those moments of connection. And, you know, if you look at evolution, what made us survive as a species is being able to connect like that and understand one another so we could cooperate, so we could hunt that woolly mammoth and eat. And, you know, so we could develop things that made us progress through the animal hierarchy. So we're, you know, we're the top of the food chain. So I I think it's also an evolutionary imperative because, you know, from the time we're babies, we're more in tune to the human voice than any other sound. So, you know, there are many reasons, but it mainly it's it's a survival tactic. Beyond it just feeling good, it's what keeps us successful as a species. As babies... If we don't have that from our parents, if we don't have that attention, what happens to us? Well, it's sort of that frustrated need, that yearning that isn't met. And as a result, babies, by the time they're one year old, they have these templates. It's what they call it in the psychological literature. But it's essentially how babies think relationships work. And they base it on all they have to base it on, which is their caregiver. And so if that caregiver isn't listening, meaning they aren't attuned to their wants and needs and, you know, really being responsive, which is what a good listener does, then that child develops a template for relationships that is not very healthy. Um, It can be very insecure and it can be anxious. And as a result, as they grow through their, their lives, they often seek out relationships that mirror or sound like what they heard first. 
So if they had a parent that wasn't responsive, then they start to look for a partner or for friends that are not responsive because that's what's familiar. I use the analogy of it like following, you know, ruts in a dirt road. They kind of go over to those ruts even if they're not the best place they could be. But how you overcome that, even if you didn't have the best childhood, is learning how to listen to other people and also letting them listen to you. And once you have that, again, those snatches of magic, which are actually you can see in people's brainwaves, it almost remaps the brain. So you get out of those ruts that keep you in relationships that are not healthy, that are more insecure. And so, you know, listening is key to really improving what your idea of relationship is if you started out at a place of of disadvantage. And how crucial is listening to developing empathy for everybody else? Oh, it's essential. I mean, how can you empathize with somebody else if you don't listen to them, if you don't know what their experiences are? If you, you know, if you have no idea what they're feeling or what their thoughts are, it's, it's impossible. We live in, a, in an age where it feels like we, there isn't enough empathy. <laughs> uh, perhaps that's always been true, but, you know, we've got plenty of, of sort of feeling now that, that people can't have conversations with those with different views, particularly. In the age of, of Trump and, and Brexit, how does your thesis come, come in there and, and how do you see it sort of, does it explain any of our recent politics? I think it does very much because if you're not listening to the other person, then you don't empathize, and then you have these entrenched, intolerant views. I mean, when you're not listening, you you don't learn, you don't understand, you don't connect, and you don't empathize. And it makes you misinformed, intolerant, it makes you anxious, and it also makes you lonely, which causes all of these things to reinforce, and you start all over again. I, you know, I... I think it's it's really hard in this age because you know we get so siloed into our our beliefs and as you were talking about with social media where it's all projection and not taking anything in. And like I said listening is a skill and it degrades if you don't do it often enough. So less and less listening, you get worse and worse at it and you don't have those rewarding moments of those snatches of magic. And so it really becomes this downward spiral, which I think is what we're seeing in politics. And I also think it's fascinating because they've also done studies that show when our really firm political views are challenged, your brain reacts as if you're being chased by a bear. I mean, it it feels like an existential threat probably a throwback to, you know, being rejected by the tribe. And if you were rejected by the tribe, you were out alone in the Serengeti and, you know, animals could get to you. You didn't have people behind you to protect you. And so as a result, people get very angry. They get, you know, alarmed. They feel like they have to impose their view on other people to get rid of that anxiety, that fear. And so that's playing into it as well. And, you know, it, it really is a matter of listening because the parts of your brain that are the higher order thinking is when you're listening. So if you can take a deep breath, realize that you are not being chased by a bear, that, that you know, that feeling inside where you can just hardly stand it, like, you know, how can that person be that stupid? You know, really take a breath and be curious. Develop that, you know, get to that other side of your brain that's the higher order thinking and ask a question, not to prove the other person wrong. Not to, you know, reveal any flaws in their logic, 
but to really find out, okay, how did that person land on that point of view? What is it that's important to them? What do they know that I don't? And, you know, once you start doing that, it makes for a much a much more interesting conversation, but it also, again, back to being able to speak in a way and talk to people in a way that they will understand and that they will listen to you, you will be able to craft an argument that lands on the points that are important to that other person because you listened. What do you do if you find, though, that that view of theirs is rooted in prejudices or things you know to be untrue, you know, Mm -hmm. a narrative of fake news? When you're confronted with somebody who believes something that you think is uh, either outlandish or prejudiced or rooted in, in, in lies, how do you then go about both listening to them Mm-hmm. And then saying, well, actually, <laughs> in a way that they will actually listen back. Well, you know, I I find it fascinating that, you know, where people come up with these things that I find really offensive. Like, how did I land where I landed? And how did they land where they landed? And oftentimes, it's really interesting to figure out what it is that got them to that place. And once you're able to do that, Again, you're able to talk to them on a level that they understand. And, you know, you may not come to a reasonable agreement about this. But, you know, the CIA agent that I interviewed, uh, he talked to me about talking to terrorists and drug dealers and really bad people who have done really bad things. And his idea was, and which I agree with, is that even if you find this person abhorrent, to have that knowledge of how that person got there, that maybe you aren't able to change that person's mind, but maybe later when you see someone else who's on the fence that could fall on that side, you know what tipped the other person that way, and you know the mindset, and you know how they regard someone like you who disagrees with them. And so you're better able to communicate with that other person before they go that way. Or at least, you know, come to some type of compromise where, you know, generally people who are like that, who have these really intolerant and really abhorrent views, very prejudiced views, it's because they haven't been exposed or they don't feel listened to themselves and they've gotten incredibly intolerant. And once you start listening to them, their minds start to open up. Now, it isn't everyone, and I'm not going to say that, you know, this is a kumbaya universe where, you know, everybody's going to say, oh, you're listening to me, and I'm going to change my mind immediately. But it does make a difference. Again, you know, sort of those, if people, you know, don't want to talk about the snatches of magic, the poetic size, you know, those neural impulses, when that happens between two people, it goes a long way to changing the way people think, to change those neural patterns that may have gotten entrenched because they didn't feel loved are because they had a really bad experience in one one point of their life that put them on the wrong track or made them think a certain way because they just didn't have the exposure and they weren't allowed to listen or didn't have the opportunity to listen to other people that made them change that stereotype. Does that make sense? Well, what do you think are politicians, looking at the quite divided uh-huh. uh, world we live in right now, What do you think they could learn from that about listening to people Uh, in terms of 
Are our politicians listening adequately to people today, do you think? I, well, I wouldn't think so. I mean, if, if you watch the coverage of politicians, they're very much speaking to the cameras and speaking to inflame passions rather than, you know, trying to work for compromise. And also a lot of it's them tweeting, you know, it's, it's tweeting or their social media. That's how they're communicating now. They're not even interacting with journalists anymore. You know, they're having their own little broadcast stations on social media. I was interested, I was listening to a very interesting interview between Trent Lott and Tom Daschle, who were in the 90s uh, the majority and minority leader of the Senate. And this was during Bill Clinton's impeachment hearings. And they were talking about why they were able to so readily come to an agreement about how they were going to run the hearings, which we're having problems with now. And they said that the, what was different now, I mean, different then than it is now, is that they had a direct line of communication between each other, not through AIDS, not through Twitter, you know, where they're reading, you know, these inflamed responses, where they talk to each other all the time, listen to each other all the time. And also, which I find really intriguing, is senators had a communal dining room, which they no longer have where they ate without AIDS and they sat down with one another and were human together. And I think a lot of intolerance comes from, and it's not only I think, it's you know been shown through research that when people know each other as a human being and not just as a position, a political position or an ideological position, they're much better able to compromise or at least reach some type of peaceful coexistence. If you learn, for example, that somebody really loves their kids, is you know rec- is recovering from an illness, has elderly parents that they're coping with, or hums Bohemian Rhapsody when they're nervous, you know they become this human being, and you know knowing their backgrounds and their influences makes it a lot easier to call the person up and say, "Look, we need to come to some type of agreement about this." And how can we go about this? You're much more likely to have that happen. And that's just not happening today. Things have gotten so inflamed that they're not, they don't even have that dining room anymore. Um, They're just not interacting. They're only interacting through, you know, social media or they're watching each other on news programs. And that's not a way, that's not listening. And it's not a way to form some type of, relationships so you can come to compromise they're also when they do engage with each other so our example here would be prime minister's questions right that it's adversarial and they are shouting to each other and they're also that after that sort of gotcha moment when you know the person is sort of on the hook for something but they're also all about winning the quip having that yes. one line yes. that's so damning or so brilliant or for makes everybody laugh uh, yeah, for the cameras, for the audience, a little bit there. But that's also come from TV, that, that you know, all about the punchy dialogue mm-hmm. uh, element. Has that influenced this in your mind, the culture of, of TV, of it all being about the one-liner rather than actually a conversation that, you know, actually has some meat to it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's people's examples of conversation now. 
it's the late night talk show or it's the, you know, shouting political pundits past each other where nobody's listening. That's, you know, our talk radio, you know, that type of thing where people, that's the model. That's what in the popular imagination, that's conversation. That is how you have an interaction with somebody. And so, yes, I, I think you're absolutely spot on. How do we go about changing this then? I mean, this is a deep-rooted thing in our society now. No, I absolutely, you know, and I, I don't think it's that hard. I really don't, even though it is deep-rooted. But it is, you know, just getting back to basics. When you're in a conversation, you know, asking yourself, what am I learning about this person? Being really genuinely curious. I want to leave this conversation having learned something about the other person. That that is your mission. You are the detective. You are finding that story. How did they feel about what we were talking about? I mean, that's a way to start. Absolutely. And also, it's all about the question. You know, being able to respond in a way that actually not only demonstrates that you are listening, but also encourages elaboration. And so you really can connect with what the other person's saying. And it's those questions that are open-ended, that are not imposing your view or trying to advise or suggest something or tell them what to do or tell them that they're wrong in some way. And now it's time for a quick break. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. A lot of our conversation, as you point out in this book, is actually what would be classed as gossip. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I'm quite pleased because you gave a defense <laughs> of gossip. And we aren't, you know, I've always thought journalism is sort of advanced gossiping, really. Um, <laughs> but but I, it's interesting to me that you defend that kind of talk. What, what is it that you think gossiping does? Well, I'm defining gossip as two people talking about someone who is not present. And contrary to the popular belief that most gossip is malicious, only 3 to 4% of it, studies have shown, and there are quite a few gossip scholars that I interviewed, more than I would have thought, but only 3 to 4% is malicious. It's generally, you know, that, you know, leaning over the, the fence or sitting on the porch talking about your trouble with another person or something you observed another person, what another person did, like this person did, can you believe they did? I didn't, and why do you think they did that? That kind of thing. So it really helps you understand uh, what's going on in your world. Who's fallen out with who? Who's, you know, everything is so, social interaction is so complicated. And, you know, every interaction can, you know, really either spin been wildly out of control or be, you know, really productive. 
just depending on that moment in time between those two people. And because it's so complicated, we're fascinated by that. Human beings are just to figure it out. And that's why we're so interested in hearing about other people. And it's what teaches us how to be ethical. We learn what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. We also learn just by virtue of how another person talks about another person. It gives you a lot of information about that person. So, yes, I mean, gossip is what teaches us how to be virtuous members of society. And it also, you know, how someone talks about another person, you realize, oh, I better not do that. You know, that really upset that person. I don't want to be that person. You point out in the book that it isn't actually very gendered. So gossip, rather unfairly, is sometimes seen as something women do. But actually, men do it a lot too. I mean, to the same level. As much as, yes. Why do you think it's come to be associated with women, that idea of talking about other people? I don't know. What do you think? I really don't know. why. I think it's because it's trivialized. Yes. People don't see that it has a value, and so it's sort of women's talk, in air quotes, uh, whereas actually it's, as you rightly say, is conveying a lot of information. I th- and maybe men do it differently, you know, the way that they talk about other people. That um, I'm actually a pilot, so I spend a lot of time in hangars, and, and men, and only 6% of pilots are women, so I'm mainly with men. And yes, they do talk just as much as women, but maybe they do it a little bit differently. You know, it starts with more of a fact-based, you know, like almost like they're going after the facts, whereas women tend to talk more about the feelings of other people. But men are talking about the facts of the situation of other people as much as women. So, you know, I, yeah, I, I'm not quite sure why they would say that, but maybe it has to do with the way they go about it. Who do you think is a good listener? So writing this book, who did you come across where you thought, oh, I could learn from that? Oh, my gosh. Well, the CIA agent, for one, and also the focus group moderator. She was incredible. Bartenders, hairstylists, I mean, the ones that I interviewed. And there was also a furniture salesman in Houston, Texas, where I'm from, who was a phenomenal listener. He picked up on just little things between, you know, if he figured out stuff like, you know, like if couples weren't getting along and, and you know, who really held the wallet? Was it the man or the woman? You know, I mean, that type of thing and really was just so cued into dynamics. Yeah, there were so many people that I found that I learned a lot from. The whole book was a learning experience and I listened for a living. And so that's why I'm really excited about the book, because there are just so many useful tips in it. What did you think you were doing wrong, if anything? I mean, you do this for a living. You're obviously very good at it. But is there anything you realized that you were getting wrong? You know, I think it reinforced my better instincts. You know, we can, all of us are going to fall down on the job on listening. You know, it's not something, it's, it's tiring. It's, you know, something that you can't do well all the time. You know, I think one of the things that I learned is that was helpful to me is when to stop listening. I have a chapter about when to stop listening because I I you know, I'm very curious and I I really want to know. You know what? Why do they think that way? But there does come a point where you have to you know, I've heard enough and we all need to come to that point. I think maybe I've been too much on the other end of listening a little too long. <laughs> <laughs> to to somebody when I needed to move on and listen to other people. 
when do you know how do you know you've listened too long yeah, well, it's easy, you know, as, as you know, as a journalist, you know, when you're really pressed for time and you realize, okay, this person is not going to answer my question. Or also to know this person actually doesn't know the answer to my question. And they're just feeding me a bunch of stuff because they want to, you know, they want to be quoted in they the paper. They want their name in the article. They want their name in the article. And so they'll just keep going and going. And, you know, you just have to tell them, well, you know, thank you very much and and move on. There's a British um, linguist and theorist, language theorist, who talks about our expectations in conversation, that we all have these subconscious expectations because in communication, it's essentially cooperative. And if you perceive that the other, the other person is not cooperating, is not keeping up their end of the bargain, you're going to get ticked off and you're going to tune out and you're going to get aggravated. That was one thing, you know, writing this book is, you know, when you talk about people and the other person's not listening, people get really aggravated when they tell you, just even remembering someone not listening to them. But the things that really that Paul Grice said that would make us stop listening, which I think are really pretty good things to go by when, you know, when to stop listening, is he talked about four maxims of our expectations and conversation. One is quality. The other's quantity, the other's relation, and the, and the fourth is manner. And quality is the truth. We expect the truth. And if you're not getting the truth, and I'm sure this happened to you as a journalist, it certainly happened to me, when we perceive, okay, this person is just lying, you know, probably time to move on. <laughs> not going to help you with your story, and this person is not a reliable source. The next one is quantity. We expect, uh, and we expect to get information that we don't already have. And you've probably had this too, where they start telling you stuff. Okay, we already know this. I'm calling you about something else. And then we also, we don't expect too much information. So it's overwhelming. And that happens too. And then, uh, relation, logical. It's not logical. And that happens to us all the time. Go to a cocktail party. Somebody's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, not following the conversation. And then manner, you know, it has to be unambiguous. And, you know, have a sort of a, a reasonably orderly way it's presented. So if any of those, and in fact, all of those are violated during a conversation, you know, that's when it's it's okay to move on. As somebody who listens a lot, do, do you find yourself sometimes, I mean, I, I, I found this and you slightly mentioned this, you find yourself listening to someone you know is lying. What are the clues to you that you know that they're not telling the truth? I mean, beyond, if you've not got evidence that yes. what they're saying is untrue, I mean. You know, well, and but that's, you know, why honing your listening skills is such an important thing. Because it's kind of like asking, you know, a baseball player, well, how did you hit that fastball? You know, they can't break it down for you, but they have done their 10,000 hours. They've done it so many times that they know when that ball's coming out, they know right when to swing. And it's sort of the same thing with someone being dishonest. You know, the more people you listen to, the more aspects of humanity you will recognize and the better your gut instincts, you know, the better able you're, the better able you are to, you know, detect deception and also divine the truth. And also, you know, detect when people are uncomfortable because sometimes people can be a real turnoff just because they're anxious. And when you are able to recognize, oh, they're just anxious, you know, they're not a bad person or they're not trying to be insulting. They're just anxious. It's, you know, it's all of those little cues. 
I think that's absolutely right because I've never been able to put my finger on exactly when I know how I know someone's lying, but I've been sure that they are lying. And um, but it is you're just picking up little things that maybe even at a subconscious level, I think. Yeah, even when I was talking about, you know, people's color of their, you know, we're not conscious of the coloration, the, you know, tiny differences in coloration, but, you know, we pick that up. And, but you don't pick that up if you're always looking at your phone or if you're not paying attention or if in your brain you're thinking about what you're going to say next. You lose that. You lose that. It's, it is a skill that needs to be practiced. It's like, you know, that baseball player or, you know, somebody who plays a musical instrument. That, you know, the more you do it, the more subtleties you pick up, and maybe you're not able to exactly articulate it. But I bet you, you know, the same thing with me is you think, I know that guy's lying. And you find out later, of course, he was lying. You know, there's something very intoxicating, though, about somebody who's a really good listener. Now, obviously, when you go to interview people, it's your job to listen. But I've interviewed people who I've thought, oh, you really listened to that question. And I, I was thinking back to the, all the people I've interviewed. And some people obviously do not listen at all. And yes. they'll, they'll tell you exactly what they want to say. Yes. They're not responding to a question. But I was thinking about people who are really good at it. And um, Jeanette Winterson, the writer, I remember I was thinking about her as actually the best listener. And I think this is this really informs her writing. So you can see it sort of has a beneficial effect. Yes. But out of everybody I've ever interviewed, she was the best listener. Mm-hmm. And it makes you feel like you're really being heard. And it felt quite rare that I came away, you know, feeling really great about myself. It's a lovely thing to be around. Do you think that if that when we meet people, even if we haven't quite sort of processed it as, oh my gosh, they're a really good listener, that actually when we come away, it makes us feel really quite good about ourselves too? It's that idea of snatches of magic. I mean, it just is that feeling of connection almost behind your solar plexus that really makes you feel good. I I have a friend at home that has quite a, let's just say, a storied romantic background, you know, has, has had quite a few romantic attachments. And she once said to me, the sexiest thing a man can do is listen to you. And really, that's that's that says a lot. But it's also, you know, not only romantic relationships, just when you meet someone, it really is. It is probably the biggest gift you can give to somebody. And that's why it felt so good that she really listened to you and really responded. It's a sign of respect. And it's, it is a gift. It is an absolute gift. What's your one tip to people? If you tell them one thing about how they can become a better listener, what would you like them to take away I think, you know, going back to making it your, you know, your top of mind when you're in a conversation, what am I going to learn about this person? What can I find out about this person? I I think that's to go in with that mindset and that being your goal. And so every conversation you have, that little piece of knowledge doesn't have to be, you know, an intimate detail, but you learn something about the other person. And also you have an idea of how they felt about what you were talking about. Those two things, that'll get you a long way. I mean, there's certainly more tips in the book, but I think as a starting point, if that's your goal, I I think that will take you quite a bit. What I took away from it is that to be interested in other people makes you interesting. Yes. And I think that, for me, uh, is the one thing I've learned, that you've got to think maybe you're sitting next to an expert in clocks or something. Mm-hmm. And you're never going to get to do that again, maybe, at a mm-hmm. dinner. And that might sound like a boring subject to some people. But, it, you know, if they this is what engages them in life, that is the way 
that, you know, you've got to ask them about that because that is where they will be interesting. Yeah, if somebody's passionate about it, if they're interested, it will be interesting. You know, that that really is the thing that, um, you know, if you get to that little spark of that person, uh, you know, like I said, it, you know, it could be their bottle cap collection. It's, you know, really, it will be interesting if you get that spark. And it even changes the cadence of their speak, their speech and, and the walls come down. And then you start connecting over other things. It, yeah, you could go a long way. Much People will like you so much better if you're interested in them than you trying to convince them to be interested in you. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me.